Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Polities Podcast. We are excited to announce that we have another issue of the greatest magazine on earth, New Polity Magazine. That's right. It's here. It's beautiful. There's a strange little wolf stealing things from on the front cover. Um, four issues a year of the best post-liberal thinking and I think some of the most um, profound critique of culture out there today. But what do I know? I'm... I'm editing it. So. <laughs> um, so this magazine is chock full of uh, of the good stuff. And what we like to do is just kind of go over it with you because really, you know, New Polity does a lot. We do podcasts, we do videos, we even do conferences. But at the end of the day, the work that, uh, the kind of engine of it all is the magazine. This is where the ideas get worked out. This is where the claims get made yeah. and everything else is just butter on the toast. Right. So. And writing is where the best thinking happens. And it, it does. I yeah. mean, at least for me, I don't, I don't know about everybody, but mm. people often meet me and then they're very disappointed to learn that I'm sluggish and slow <laughs> in, in conversation. What do you think about this? I've never thought about that, but put me alone in a room with a piece of paper and a pen and I start thinking it. I, I write down what I think. I look at it. And I say that's ridiculous, uh, and then I re rebut myself. And then eventually, you know, the truth wins. Yeah, we appreciate it. And it's a bit of you know varied content in the recent magazines. Instead of just uh, early on, it was academic articles only. Yeah. Um, but yeah, now we have the overtures, um, stuff from the tradition that we're pulling up. Yep. Um, Some more straightforward articles, reviews, yeah. and then we do have the academic stuff. Yeah, know, check this out, guys. Junkies. All right, sneak peek. Sneak peek. You still have to uh, subscribe to the magazine right away, but I will show you how cool it is. What we have decided to do is have an academic section. So we're still doing the hard work here, the heavy lifting, but you'll notice when you turn to it, we have a section entitled From the Academy, and we like to include two or three academic articles. Um, but those are really for those people who want to dive in deep, and that should be all of you. Dive in deep. Don't be scared. All right, so this magazine was a lot of fun. It was pretty economic. I mean, we really we don't really go for themes exactly, um, but it does turn out that people tend to be thinking some of the same sorts of things at the same time, and so it's just that the money is on the mind. Yes. And so we got a lot of different submissions concerning money and power, um, and so it took on a certain economic angle, which is great because if you've listened to Good Money, I think this issue especially has the uh, you know that sort of thinking in it, and mm -hmm. opportunities to go a little bit deeper with that. Totally, some some heavy lifting with Madai, his mm -hmm. article, and especially his practical implications. Yeah, because um, he's talking about stock ownership and the anonymous societies, as he calls it. Yes, this move towards anonymity. And he says that that's removing, you know, uh, people's actual power to invest and help the common good mm -hmm. and making it just an anonymous private investment, very similar to you and Jacob's critiques of 401ks and what it does. Yeah, yeah. And he actually showed, Mandai in his article shows that Adam Smith, of all people, already um, had misgivings about the movement from what you might call like real or very tangible investment to stock investment, um, where you're moving from largely companies that were owned by people that knew the work, mm -hmm. that were either doing it or had done it or were involved in it, um, to people that only really had an interest in share prices. So, you know, 
instead of the millers owning a, a milling collective, uh, he, he talks about the way that you own shares in the mill, so you own part of its profits. Um, but this was extrinsic to knowledge of milling and the work of milling. And so inevitably, uh, Adam Smith suggests you will get careless owners. Oh, right? okay, right. Now, this is, I don't know if he could have predicted the degree <laughs> of careless owner. I mean, we're so careless that we're, I think, barely even owners, which we talk about when, when, yeah. we, when we own when we quote unquote own companies through stocks, it's like you don't even know what companies you own usually, mm-hmm. typically. So they're lumped together in an ETF yeah. or you're just investing in a mutual fund. Like it's it's almost it's interesting with the the Adam Smith quote that it's it's progressed so much farther. It's not just, hey, you're gonna be a bad manager if you own, but you're not actually like your company's gonna fail if you just own anonymously, like right. he was saying. Right. But now it's to the point where there's like levels, degrees of separation from you and anything close to even what he was critiquing. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, it's my Robinhood app, like an option trade. Yes. Like a call option on Apple stock. And <laughs> I can do it from anywhere. Yeah. So I, I found that the idea of anonymity to be very helpful. Yeah, he's uh, got a great a quote, and in, in, uh, I'll read this here. So he asks the question, who owns the corporation? If the shareholders do not own the corporation in this thick sense you're talking about, then who does? Normally, we consider the person who has beneficial use, control, and responsibility for the property to be the owner. Clearly, that would be the senior managers. As Kevin Carson notes, quote, the the corporation is an agglomeration of unowned capital under the control of a self-perpetuating managerial oligarchy. Oof. John Bogle, Bogle, the founder of the Vanguard Investment Funds, no anti-capitalist he, says, quote, In the corporate system, the owner of industrial wealth is left with a mere symbol of ownership, while the power, the responsibility, and the substance, which have been an integral part of ownership in the past, are being transferred to a separate group in whose hands lies control. This is very important. This is Vanguard, right? This is they're Mm. not (laughs) they're not saying this is a bad thing, you know. I think it's a bad thing. Yeah, they're supporting it. So management seems to be an overhead expense with no natural limits, short of bankrupting the company. What management mostly produces is more managers, which means new configurations of power in the firm and in the economy. Indeed, the rise of managerial power has spawned a new class of uber managers whose pay and privileges dwarf those of line workers to an unprecedented degree. He's going to quote Bogle, maybe Bogle again, who says, Over the past century, a gradual move from owner's capitalism, providing the lion's share of the rewards of investment to those who put up the money and risk their own capital, has culminated in, in an extreme version of manager's capitalism, providing mm. vastly disproportionate rewards to those whom we have trusted to manage our enterprises in the interest of the owners. So um, and he gives some alarming stocks, or alarming, <laughs> alarming stocks, <laughs> alarming statistics uh, regarding the immense wealth gap as we are yeah. so familiar with. So maybe to give like an example of what he's describing, I don't know if people are like familiar with like the Steve Jobs story or seen the movies about him or whatever, but I'm not. There's a so okay, you'll have yeah. to <laughs> help me um, out. Yeah, there's a you know, he starts Apple, he's uh he's he ends up pushing Wozniak out, so he ends up being the sole owner, but uh he's kind of an owner manager where yeah. he's the CEO and he owns the most of the stocks. 
he goes public, and then at a certain point, he starts making decisions, and he has a board of directors at that point. And so he's starting to seed some of his owner capitalism to be more managerial and run the company. And then the board of directors vote him out of the company. And he leaves, and he has this, like, depression arc, and then he comes back, and he launches the iPhone, and it's on on from there. Hence, it's a movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) But anyways, so you end up... Yeah, where you just have board of directors and then you have like a whole class of managers who who actually own in the sense of running the company and then they get rewarded while the laborers kind of – labor is just the same across the board. We yeah. just – unless you get elevated into management. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. And this I think brings us to Christopher Dawson's essay which we included in here, um, which I think is very important – it's nice to have as good and solid a Catholic as Christopher Dawson say things about the bourgeois that's uh, harsher than Marx. Because <laughs> that's like, okay, it's not just like a, something that we have to have from Karl Marx. Actually, he gets really mad at Karl Marx for being bourgeois himself. So, you know. But he wrote an essay um, Catholicism and the Bourgeois Mind. Mm-hmm. And uh, he basically is making a sort of two cities argument um, between Catholicism and bourgeois culture, bourgeois spirit. And it uh, expresses what you're expressing, this, this move from, from ownership to managerial control, uh, seems to be a sort of final chapter, as it were, in the spread of the bourgeois spirit. Uh, why? Because as Dawson describes it, um, the... Well, I'll just read a a brief um, quotation here. Um, He says, If the bourgeois is the enemy of the peasant... Well, let me actually back up. So he describes something that I thought was really interesting, which is I've always thought of the bourgeois class as sort of arising up with modernity, post-Reformation, out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. He says, no, it's not really that. It was always a part of Christendom. It was always part of the medieval town. There There were middlemen who specifically lived in urban environments, but they were a very small group of people because most of life was through the growing of food in the, in the peasantry, the making of things in the artisans, and mm-hmm. then in the land ownership and warring, warfare of the, of the nobles, right. right? And so there was a kind of hierarchical life there. Um, but that didn't mean that there was no such thing as money, and that didn't mean that there was no such thing as a kind of life, whether as a merchant or mm-hmm. as a, a banker or something like that, that could exist in the town, without having that direct reliance on the land uh, and could actually live through money. That mm-hmm. you, you, he describes using money as the tools of, of the trade. But it was always a very limited sphere, cultural sphere. It was always viewed with antipathy <laughs> by everybody else, <laughs> sure. um, but it had a kind of um, dogged life. What Dawson is asking is why is it now that this very limited life within the walls of the medieval city is is just absolutely the spirit of the age. That there is no, you know, we don't have any of those other classes I mentioned, right? We don't mm. have peasants, we don't have warriors. We don't, you know, everyone does what they do um, for the sake of money, through the use of money, needs money to survive. Okay. The bourgeois life is no longer a limited description of a of one option. It is 
basically the way. So you're no live. longer a peasant. You're moving into being like a wage earner, yeah, laborers, wait. and like the the aristocracy or the nobles. Um, well, what are they up to? Yeah, what are they in up our to? age? Yeah, making, making money. Making money. Okay, right. right. So he, I'll, I'll read this. So, but if the bourgeois is the enemy of the peasant, he is no less the enemy of the artist and the craftsman, as some bar. These names. You guys can just murder me on my pronunciations in the comments. It's fine. He's shown in his elaborate study of the historic evolution of the bourgeois type. The craftsman, like the artist, has an organic relation to the object of his work. Quote, they see in their work a part of themselves and identify themselves with it so that they would be happy if they can never be separated from it. For, in the pre-capitalist order, the production of goods is the act of living men who, so to speak, incarnate themselves in their works. And so it follows the same laws that rule their physical life. In the same way as the growth of a tree or the active reproduction of an animal obeys in its direction and measure and end the internal necessities of the living organism. The attitude of the bourgeois, on the other hand, is that of the merchant whose relation to his merchandise is external and impersonal. He sees in them only objects of exchange, the value of which is to be measured exclusively in terms of money. It makes no difference whether he is dealing in works of art or cheap ready-made suits. All that matters is the volume of the transactions and the amount of profit to be derived from them. In other words, his attitude is not qualitative, but quantitative. It is easy enough to see why this should be, for the bourgeois was originally the middleman who stood between the producer and the consumer, as a merchant, salesman, broker, or banker. And thus, there is not merely an analogy, but an organic connection between the role of the bourgeois in society and the economic function of money. One is the middleman, and the other is the medium of exchange. The bourgeois lives for money, not merely as the peasant or the soldier, or even the artist often does, right? Like they're desperately trying to get money because they mm -hmm. need to. But in a deeper <laughs> sense, since money is to him what arms are to the soldier and land is to the peasant, the tools of his trade and the medium through which he expresses himself, so that he often takes an almost disinterested pleasure in his wealth because of the virtuosity he has displayed in his financial operations. In short, the bourgeois is essentially a moneymaker, at once its servant and its master, and the development of his social ascendancy shows the degree to which civilization and human life are dominated by the money power. All right, this is, this is, this is great stuff, and it really rings true um, because it expresses, when you look at our society, again, you know, 100 years down the road here, um, you can see how the making of money has become – sorry, this is an interesting point, right? Mm -hmm. Because because sometimes you hear us talk and you think, oh, they think everyone's really greedy. Like they, they want money because they want to use it for power and such. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's actually what's happening here. Like when you have universalized necessity of wage labor and when money – when you live in the cash nexus, which is just to say that – you need money to survive at whatever state of life you're at. Um, your ability to gain money also becomes a marker of value. So it, it begins to take the place of, or rather it begins to provide honor. And then your inability to make money begins to provide shame. Hmm. Um, there's not like an alternative set of values out there where you can say like, look, I'm poor, but I'm, um, I'm an incredible fighter. Or look, I'm um, terrible at, at making money and, but I, I, you know, I care for this land or something like that. Mm -hmm. the, these values are largely gone and in their place, money 
becomes the way of evaluating success, the way of evaluating mm-hmm. um, of having arrived within society and that sort of thing. Right. The best people we reward with money, everything has to be rewarded as it's, it becomes the, like the only value be the, the only, only, yeah. Yeah. It's and like that's a when people are like spirit. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, right, because because you take something that you really actually value for its own sake, but then you need to translate it into the language of money in order to make it real, as it were. Mm. It's kind of like when you're when you're dating someone, but it's not real until you post it on Facebook, right? <laughs> so this back in the day when people used Facebook, this showed uh, like it showed where where the real spirit of life was. It was online. Um, now with money, you talk to people. You know, you I think everyone's met someone who has like some silly collection. And like it's like action heroes or something, mm-hmm. and then they they want to just be able to say I love, you know, Flash, Batman, and I love having little statues of them. I think it's rad, but of course this is embarrassing for them. So they tell you things like you wouldn't believe how much this unopened <laughs> Batman is worth, and it'll be worth way more. Yeah, worth five more. years. So it's, it's actually an investment. It's all an you investment. Can't just like it. I yeah. was just learning from a. Freaking gas station TV, you know these things like you're getting I your hate gas. Those so and just much. Start. all right. Well, here's what it taught me today. Uh, there's a, a a bottle of wine that just sold for like five hundred thousand dollars, and the guy on the gas station TV was saying this is a new way that the wealthy are storing their wealth, which is like, oh man, he's not going to drink the wine. <laughs> yeah, he's just going to put it's it just, on. The, it's just going to be a store of value, which is awesome because it's exactly what Ecclesiastes says. He says, I've seen. Uh, um, uh, I, I've seen an evil on earth. Uh, a God has given man wealth, but not the power to enjoy it. I've always thought that was kind of obscure, mm-hmm. but like that's literally what's happening. If you buy a five hundred thousand dollar bottle of wine, but it's a store of value, so it sits there. You don't have the power to enjoy it. It's like, well, who's the master here? Is it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. I, yeah. So I think. I think uh, Dawson really gives a sort of historical narrative for mm-hmm. money becoming the dominant value of society and then shows that um, there's a type of character whose virtues, virtuosity is expressed in money who then becomes the dominant hero of the age. Right. Yeah. They're the ones who succeed. Totally. Yeah. And this is really important because we think of our like super billionaires and stuff as we want them to fill that like aristocrat role, right? Oh, Whether yeah. we hate them or love them, we mm. want them to be like our sort of, our, our heroes, our knights, our wicked kings, and we want to put them up there. Uh, but they're not. They're like our they're like our shopkeepers on steroids, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. And this is this is why I think Elon Musk and, and Mark Zuckerberg will never have that, that MMA fight that they promised. Because think about it. I was really hoping they would. Because you, you remember, know what I'm talking yeah. about? They're mm-hmm. briefly going to beat the crap out of each other in a cage match. And it was like, I mean, it was awesome. Like the, the very thought. No, no, think about it. Like, like it, it wasn't just the possibility of, of, a, of a fight where s- s- one of two people who I find annoying is going to get punched gonna and get I'm going to get to watch. Face, yeah. It wasn't just that. That's crude. It was that they were beginning to countenance a new set of values that were not bourgeois. Mm. Right? So they had this idea of competition. But the thing about competition within capitalism is that it's never over, right? So if you're making money and the whole competition is who can make the most money, no one ever wins yeah. because you could always make more money, mm-hmm. it, right? Like, it's very sad. Like, I remember when, when Elon Musk became the first, he became the richest person in the world very briefly in this sort of horse race. 
And they told him, hey, you're the richest man in the world. And he said, oh, am I? Well, back to work. And everyone was like, oh, he's so humble and so incredible. This is why he's so rich. But that's the lamest, most bourgeois answer you can have because what he was acknowledging in this is that there's no victory lap. There's no celebration. There's no goal that's achieved because when the, you're expressing yourself through the, your virtuosity through, through the making of money, mm. you simply are always obliged to make more money. So back to work is the answer. What's the yeah. reward for becoming the richest man in the world? Doing more of the same thing you were doing before. Rise and grind tomorrow. Rise and grind, baby. So, but the fight, like somebody wins. Mm -hmm. Somebody unequivocally. Gets the hand raised. Gets honor <laughs> and glory. Yeah. On the basis of their of their butt kicking capacity, which is measured and then and then and then finishes. There's a there's a cathartic uh, moment, mm -hmm. and in that moment they they rise to the level of a new kind of person. And Dawson describes the need for a new kind of humanity, um, and not just like a well. So he describes this need, and, and I and I think of what he think of what he's saying there, right? Like when it is the case that our mega billionaires receive honor and glory because they like roundhouse kicked someone in the face in an excellent manner. Then they're now being judged by a standard that's quite outside of themselves, mm. outside of the values of their culture. But most importantly, I think has a, um, has a finitude to it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think even in getting your butt kicked in that fight, you would be undergoing the same transformation. Like you would put yourself on the line um, to be judged in a final way. And I think this would lead you to the edge of conversion because if you really felt it, if it's like, and I'm getting romantic here, but I, <laughs> this is what I imagine would happen. It's like Zuck, he's looking for happiness all his life. And then finally, when he, when he just slams that guy and his hands raised, he has this moment of like, this is what all the searching and striving was for. And then he gives away all his wealth. It's like a St. Francis moment, right? So mm. he, he like takes off his clothes on national TV and he sells it all. He gives it all to the monasteries and he just fights. Like that's what he this does. Is the best possible universe. He just that fights. Yeah. And everyone gives him that glory that he sought, but it becomes socially helpful as opposed to um, socially harmful, which is mm. what, what the accumulation of money as your only victory does. Yeah. Harms and, the world. And if you're just making... Yeah, you can't really have that moment of like genuine honor or like hands raised victory. Yeah, you just can't have that if it's, oh, you know, X is doing better than Facebook now or whatever. Uh, or yeah, Meta. Yeah. They all change their company names now, uh, too. You know, you got to change things around to keep the, to keep the, uh, to keep in the news, as it were. Yeah, so he talks a lot about um, the spiritual change that's necessary. Um, I'll read the end because it's quite good. He says, Oh, and, and, and just to be clear, this essay is about comparing the gospel to the bourgeois type. So he defines two types of fundamental spiritualities, open and closed. The bourgeois is fundamentally closed, um, and the Christian is fundamentally open. So he says, seen from this point of view, it is obvious that the Christian ethos is essentially anti-bourgeois since it is the ethos of love. This is particular, particularly obvious in the case of St. Francis, who appropriated to his use the phraseology of medieval erotic poetry and used the anti-bourgeois concepts of the chivalrous class consciousness, such as Adele, Nobel, and Gentil, in order to define the spiritual character of the true mystic, right? So the appeal of 
Christianity is to an immense nobility that scorns um, accumulation. But it is no less clear in the case of the gospel itself. The spirit of the gospel is eminently that of the open type, which gives asking nothing in return and mm. spends itself for others. It is essentially hostile to the spirit of calculation, the spirit of worldly prudence, and above all to the spirit of religious self-seeking and self-satisfaction. For what is the Pharisee but a spiritual bourgeois, a typically closed nature, a man who applies the principle of calculation and gain, not to economics, but to religion itself, hmm. a hoarder of merits who reckons his accounts with heaven as though God was his banker. It is against this closed, self-sufficient moralist ethic that the fiercest denunciations of the gospel are directed. Even hmm. the sinner who possesses a seed of generosity, a faculty of self-surrender, and an openness of spirit is nearer to the kingdom of heaven than the righteous Pharisee, for the soul that is closed to love is closed to grace. Yeah, that is just just extremely powerful. And there's there's something here the different spirits, and he talks about the spiritual Pharisee, and the Pharisee is the one who hyper fixates the law, where the law is in all of its minutia followed down all to the detail of like you're picking grains on the Sabbath, mm -hmm. you know, or you didn't wash the inside of the cup right or something like that. And I'm just thinking about St. Paul and the movement from law to grace, which is all through Romans and first Corinthians, like its whole work, where it's almost as if, you know, if Christianity, if Christendom eventually became bourgeois society, in a sense, it's kind of the movement back into law. In a in a weird sense, where it's it's a movement into a totalized law of transactions, of numbers, of debts, of credits, yeah. and 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 you can't be saved under the law yes. because you you just it, it's all calculated. But when Paul talks about the free gift not being like the trespass, and that grace basically destroys the logic of law because it's yeah. like I give, and then you owe me something. No, I just keep giving, and yes. God just keeps giving. And so the bourgeois spirit, you know, in calling it a spiritual, spiritual pharis pharisaicalism, um, I I think we're we're getting close to that that notion that Paul talks about that the law produces slavery. Yeah. And yeah. and what what we need to do then is when you introduce grace into a law that is totalized, you start to explode like in little ways explode the logic of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right, and I think it ends up that the Christian who wants to follow this Christianity seems not like a lawbreaker, but, but definitely imprudent in a bourgeois society. Like, um, yeah, I mean, this just, just, there, there's just no room for, um, the kind of openness of spirit that doesn't, that isn't, um, sort of carefully involved in maintaining the security that comes through money as their mm -hmm. primary work. So maybe like retirement, for for example, sure. like the things you you guys have said about retirement, um, where you're storing up treasures, hopefully, you know, able to pay for yourself. Yeah. And, and you and Jacob have said in the Good Money podcast, like, be generous now. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. build up a life now that um, you're using your money for the good. And in a sense, you really have to have a good deal of faith when you do that oh, as well. Yeah, especially like, in a bourgeois culture, because you're not you're you're stepping you're stepping out where there's not obvious supports besides money, right? Like, and you know, this isn't this is not a call to actual imprudence, which would just be a vice. It's like a call to recognize the goal, 
which is not a security that comes from money, but a security that comes from God and from the church. Um, and then the question of how far can we attain, can we attain that goal? Mm. Um, yeah, it's interesting. One way to look at it, and this probably brings us to the uh, debate section <clears throat> where we talk about shareholding with uh, Michael Humphreys. It was a great debate. This was good fun. He did a great job. Um, he sent us something telling us we were totally wrong, and then we sent him something saying, no, we're totally right, and we hope that the, the debate will continue. But maybe just as a preface to it, um, you know, how do I put it? The the The... It can seem imprudent um, to say that, look, Christianity teaches giving way, way over saving. It teaches um, um, risking oneself with the other rather than calculation and, and mm. the pursuit of security through money. Um, it condemns hoarding of all kinds, um, even hoarding for some ostensibly, you know, future good motive. So, it can seem like there's a sort of imprudence being advocated for it. And, and I understand that. And what I want to suggest is actually done properly, the virtues that govern the use of money within the Christian tradition um, do provide the security um, that the bourgeois spirit longs for in money. They just don't provide it in that same way. It becomes a fruit of the Catholic pursuit of some other good and not the actual good being pursued. So what do I mean? I, I mean something like this. It's like if you have a bunch of money saved up, you can say, well, I'm going to put this to my retirement and eventually when I get old, I'm going to use it to buy a, a nurse or I'm going to buy um, some luxury goods where I can enjoy the end of my life in, mm -hmm. in comfort or I'm going to buy drugs to keep me to keep me living or something like that. Um, and it's not that the desire for security and even to some extent comfort is, is bad, but within the Christian tradition, we realize, I think that where that security really comes from at the end of the day is people. It, mm -hmm. It's, it's the church most fundamentally, like other Christians who love us and want to take care of us. And so the question becomes, how do we use money in such a way that we have networks of kin and networks of care and networks of friends who will do what we need because they love us? Because money is, as Christ says, for the sake of making friends. He tells us to make friends with it. And he's not just given a random like, hey, by the way, people, people are pretty pleased with you if you throw 20 bucks at them. <laughs> He's saying like, well, the use of this thing um, is going to get you the security that, like the careful use of the thing is going to get you the security that the thing itself seems to give you at the end, but doesn't quite really. So what, what I mean is, you can imagine this, right? Like if you very carefully took all of that extra money that, that you get, all your surplus, and after taking care of the poor, et cetera, you have the surplus. If instead of investing it in the major companies of America in order to secure for yourself a comfortable retirement, what if you took that money and then very deliberately um, invested in people who you knew you were going to share the whole of your life with? So give really careful gifts. Maybe there's a guy who is, you know, he's a neighbor 
He's a little down on his luck, but he's managing. But if you could get him a lawnmower, like a good one, then he could really up his business that he's working on and be able to more effectively, you know, do lawn care in your town. Well, guess what? You haven't just given a gift, which has merit in itself, but you've also probably made a friend. Mm-hmm. You've probably made a friend that if if he sticks around, is going to look at you as you get older as someone whom he wants to give back to. Um, now, it's not a machine, and this is the difference. There is trust involved. You can't guarantee that that friend isn't going to be like, thanks, sucker, takes the lawnmower, gets <laughs> yeah, rich, kind of moves out of town. Yeah, right. yeah. So I'm not denying the, the need for trust and faith and the risk of the other, like you're always risking the other. There's no getting around that. I don't want to suggest that this, that when you look at what Christianity teaches, it's somehow a like a equal opposite machine that gets the same results. It's like, well, you can have the machine of the of investment in the stock market that gets you this definite result, or you can have the machine of the virtues, which makes people act in this way and gets you this definite result. It's like, no, no, no. These are two forms of life, one which is an act that involves you in risk mm-hmm. and in the necessity of virtue. Like you need everybody to be virtuous. Um, okay, but you can see... I think how at the end of the day, money is actually as um, risky in terms of what its value will be uh, mm-hmm. in the future. So you're, you're betting on an economy that's not going to go through massive inflation. You're betting that your money is still going to be worth something. Mm-hmm. You're betting that uh, the stock market itself won't crash, won't fail. And we know it does, right? Mm-hmm. Great Depression or something, you can have everything store it up in the bank and then it's it's not worth anything. Right. So where's your and retirement you're now? Betting, you're betting that your money will be able to provide you the the needs that you need at that time. Let's say if you need, you know, the the better, nicer house or nurses or whatever, it could be that there that friends would be a lot better or family would be a lot better to take care of you at that time than people you could pay. Right. Pretty much guaranteed. Well usually. that yeah, that's for sure. <clears throat> And so the the call here is not anything imprudent. It's actually to be thrifty and careful for the first time with your money and to say, okay, if this is for security, be honest. Where is your security? Your security is in your family. It's in your friends. It's in your church. So the kinds of things we should do for our money should build up our friends, our family, our church, our city, right? Uh, It should create the kind of city that we want to live in. So local investment isn't just a, um, again, it's not just like an equal but opposite place to invest. It's like, why don't you invest in your local economy versus in Google and and Microsoft? It's like, no, when you turn to a local investment, you're actually part of the good that you're investing in. Um, So you're you're making friends in a very broad way Mm -hmm. that you can then enjoy. And so there's a, a thriftiness, I think, to the Christian virtue ethic which is like use money for the sake of that security that money alone can't promise, um, and but that friends can. Mm-hmm. And they promise because they're friends. They promise in freedom, which is, I think, which I think is marvelous. Um, okay, so that's but that's just some like good money recap, really. So in this, <laughs> in this debate, it's, um, it's about shareholding, uh, and I just think everyone should read it um, because it... We wrote a article in a previous issue, and I think we put it online, um, about shareholding being a, a sin. Um, and Michael Humphreys responds, shareholding is not a sin. And he gives several reasons why. And 
one difference that I think is worth looking at is the question of um, of ownership. Not because I want to. I don't want to go through this debate because I'm not about to be like, <laughs> I think we won. It's like, no, no, this is ongoing. This is ongoing. Sure. Uh, and, but there was the beauty about debate. And the reason I think it's so wonderful is because you get to see where things you thought were clear were not clear. You mm-hmm. get to um, see where things that you thought were correct were not correct. You get to back up and say, okay, no, no, that's, that's a bad argument. Here's a better argument. Um, and you also really get to see what's important. Um, and what I realized in, in doing this debate with uh, Michael was that the question of ownership, like what constitutes real ownership, is really important. Um, so I just want to – can I read a part? Yeah, please. Um, just to get people to pony up and get the magazine. All right. So – This is concerning the question of voting rights. Mm. So when you own stock in a company, um, you ostensibly have rights to take part in certain decisions. Um, And I'm learning that this is less and less meaningful over time. Yeah. Um, But you do have certain rights. So the question that people who, who want to say Catholics should invest in the stock market sometimes put to us is like, well, look, if... If um, you're saying that it's not real ownership, but one of the qualities of ownership is having responsibility for that which you own, and here is a way in which we have that responsibility. We can vote on decisions about the boards of directors of companies, for instance. And isn't there this whole culture of you know uh, activist um, um, use of voting? Like, like can't we be Catholics and? you know, invest in companies, and then because we have this position, use our, our shareholder influence for getting better decisions, something like that. Um, and so this, this part I'm going to read is sort of in reference to that problem. Okay. Humphreys, along with many other defenders of the stock market, take great comfort in the voting rights that accrue to certain levels of shareholders. I say certain levels because it's not every shareholder that gets to vote at all it's if you have a certain amount usually uh, it's a lot a lot <laughs> yeah. and if you're doing it through an index or a mutual fund um, part of doing it through a mutual fund is that you give um, your voting right oh, up okay. to the mutual fund yeah. right so so vanguard votes for you which we we've we have questioned this because the USCCB seems to suggest at, at some point that this is a bad way of operating like we should mm. really take responsibility but they don't seem to be against using mutual funds or anything like that. So these rights are are for them, that is the defenders of the stock market, an adequate balm to the wound left by the destruction of the older forms of ownership that shareholding precludes, like a proportional share in a company's profits or responsibility for a company's operations. So, you know, Steve Jobs when he had a when he had a job, you know. By this method these defenders, would draw a line of continuity between the Christian tradition and our modern tradition of shareholding. So just as members of the societas, that's the old form of uh, investing, joint investing, uh, just as members of the societas all had ownership and expressed this ownership by their labor, responsibility, and share in the profits, so shareholders of a modern company have voting rights 
a, quote, limited and remote sort of authority, says Humphreys, but, quote, an authority and consequently a responsibility nonetheless. To his credit, Humphreys seems nervous. Perhaps the shareholder's scanty pile of voting rights doesn't quite fill the hole left by the removal of traditional forms of ownership. He hopes for ways in which shareholders, shareholders might have, quote, a more significant say in the operations of the business, end quote. But where we, that's uh, Jacob Imam and I, see a sim- simulacrum, don't say that word aloud very often, sorry. Uh, that <laughs> Good old Bojur. <laughs> yeah, that feels enough like ownership to smother the conscience, Humphreys sees just enough ownership to clear the shareholder's name, to say, yes, you can stop Apple from using slaves. You can vote. And if you can't vote, this is a contingency. One day it'll be fixed. One day we'll have shareholder democracy. This is a reference to a certain... Um, uh, utopianism, I find, in the defenders of the stock market, that they don't always defend the stock market that we have. They defend the stock market that we could have if, if the laws were different. And one of the things that they point to is like, well, we could give shareholders way more power than we do, and then you would see a lot more responsibility. And in fact, Humphreys advocates this to his credit. But our point is like, we're, we're attacking this stock market like um, as being bad. Mm-hmm. And we, well, anyways, okay, so... In fact, shareholder passivity is a feature and not a bug of our system of shareholding. This quotes a scholar of the stock market who says, one of the key characteristics of corporations is the separation of ownership and control, which is Mm -hmm. exactly what we discussed in Madai's article. See, it all comes together. Shareholders do not have any managerial control over ordinary business. Even the process by which shareholders elect new directors is nominal. The average shareholder can neither propose candidates nor vote against board-sponsored candidates. New directors do not need to win a majority of shareholders' votes to be elected. A plurality of votes will do. What about trying to get, say, Adobe or Bank of America to stop giving money to Planned Parenthood? Shareholders can write resolutions, but these resolutions are not legally binding. The company does not have to vote on them or even publish their contents to other shareholders. Mm -hmm. They are dismissible suggestions. Uh, now, let's be clear, just because they're dismissible suggestions by the company, like the, the legal framework for this, I'm not saying that they're otherwise utterly without merit because you can use them to raise a big media stink that makes the company look bad. And so, then people sell shares. Yeah. Right, exactly. I mean, the main, so there's the, an extrinsic, the main voting right in a, that like an individual shareholder has yeah. is just being able to sell his stock or buy his stock. Right. That, that's, you know, where you, like, that's where you really prove the, uh, yeah, the that's where you prove, all right, did you have a really good PR campaign and, and is your new product, your Tesla truck or whatever going to mm-hmm. be great. And then if it is buy, 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 right. And then, Oh no, maybe it's, it, it won't go as far. Starts yeah. plummeting. It's, but like investors are not sitting there like, I want to vote to make the Tesla truck better. Yeah. They just they just buy and sell. Yeah, and, and we sort of get to this. Yeah. yeah, but anyways. All this makes ownership a merely moralistic category, a label you must technically be able to stick on your acts of shareholding in, under, in order to render them licit. Um, Humphreys assents to the obvious moral truth that if you gain from a company, you also gain a responsibility for its operations. But he seems to be satisfied that this responsibility only sort of exists and should exist more. And in the meantime, let's just press on. So let's pretend for a moment that the voting rights granted to shareholders are a sufficient form of ownership to justify the money they make from selling their shares. Okay, so we're going to do a thought experiment. Let's say, okay, that's whatever you can do with those voting rights. That's great. 
Surely it could not be the case that an unpracticed voting right is a sufficient form of ownership in this regard, right? The legal capacity, the legal capacity to be responsible is not yet responsibility. Yeah, you just have the potential to be responsible. <laughs> and this, is my, this is my one great contribution to, to science. If one were to own a dog on this basis, it would be obvious, ridic- obviously ridiculous. That's my dog. I don't feed it. I don't house it. I have no idea where it is or what it is doing. I take no part in making any particular decisions regarding it, but I could. <laughs> if it bites someone, I'm not liable. Still, if you sell my dog, I deserve the money from it. Why? Because I had the abstract right to direct my dog's behavior. Now, yeah. obviously, anyone hearing this would be justified in shooting my dog. He would even be justified in shooting me. If it is the case that a voting right accrues sufficient responsibility to justify shareholding, then it would seem to follow that all those who own shares without exercising those voting rights are actually unjustified in holding shares, right? Mm. Capitalists may argue that a purchase price uh, is sufficient, like having just bought it is sufficient to justify holding some property as private property, but Catholics, like Humphreys, know better. Private property is justified as a means of service to the common good. The Christian tradition wouldn't bat an eye if a lawful authority were to confiscate and redistribute a parcel of productive property that was only technically owned, but was in fact being hoarded and wasted. As Pope St. John Paul II said, ownership of this kind has no justification and represents an abuse in the sight of God and man. Just so, defenders of the stock market should not flinch to recommend that share ownership be contingent on the use of voting rights. Right, So not ownership because you could vote, but ownership if you do vote. And Mm -hmm. that wherever these rights are not used, a lawful authority should confiscate the offending shareholder's shares, cash them out, and redistribute their value as payments to the religious orders. So that's our our suggestion. I think this is really important because I think sometimes we can get very abstract with this discussion. And we can imagine that it's like, it's like, yeah, you know, no, nothing's really changed. I've got stocks in a company, and that's basically the same as, as you know, having some kind of um, ownership in the company where I, I have, you know, part of its profits uh, and responsibility for its operation. And you can tell because, look, I'm getting some money when I sell the stock, and that's kind of like getting a share of the profits, and I have voting rights, and that's kind of like responsibility. Um, but it's like the difference is actually infinite. It's the difference between potency and act it's mm-hmm. the difference between a capacity and a genuine responsibility it's like um it seems to me like it's smarter to just say hey ownership as we normally speak of it like the dog involves responsibility intrinsically so if you say well i've got a new form of ownership i want to talk about where responsibility is extrinsic to it like you can do it or you can not be responsible you still own it I think it would be more sensible to say, well, then that's not what we mean by ownership. You're talking about a different relationship mm-hmm. than to say, oh, I guess, yeah, responsibility isn't actually intrinsic to ownership. Ownership is something broader than that. It's, whatever, yeah. it's, it's sort of a nominal term. That doesn't seem right to me. Mm-hmm. So anyways, but you know, that, that's just one part of the debate. Um, Humphreys is a brilliant guy who really, who really gets into the, the history of it and um, does a lot of great critiques. And so I would really recommend, if nothing else, people reading that. I think, and this is moves beyond just to kind of a more of a categorization. It seems like the people, the people who really get into like where the money's moving in stock market things, where they they've seen the hedge funds, they've been mm-hmm. on Wall Street, whatever. Yeah. 
they're as cynical as we're presenting it to be. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Like, they're, yeah. they're not over there like, this is great. They're yeah. like, <laughs> like, I remember I got into, you know, knowing about stock market stuff around like 2020 yeah. and 21, where you had these insane in- inflation from the Fed. And so all these companies were just killing it and making a lot of money. I saw one company, oh, and also all the vaccine companies, right. Johnson & Johnson. Yeah. There was one in Chicago, I remember, in like mid-2020, that announced they just made this video and said we've had one study where our vaccine was like effective yeah. and it was in it was only like two months after covid was like had kind of broken yeah and instantly their share price went up yeah. by like some billions yeah yeah come to find out the ceo had taken call options which i don't know if you know what I have no it's idea what it's, it's basically you're betting on the share price within a certain time frame okay and so if it jumps you know 100% you could make something like a 10,000% return wow he bought like a few million dollars of call options on his own company wow awesome. and then cashed out yeah. some insane amount and so i i watched that whole thing unfold yes and i think Wow, look at all the Catholic values going yeah, on. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Like, this is definitely good. Share, it, share price is so good, you'll have a heart attack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the whole, I mean, the, the options market is some like four times larger than the actual stock market is. And, and that's, that's side be- betting, and that's betting on, on stocks. stocks. Gotcha. You have all sorts of hedge funds that will, I mean, like what happened with GameStop, AMC, yeah. and then you add on to that all the external Bitcoin crypto stuff going on. And it's like the more you learn about it, the more you're we're not talking about just, oh, you have a mutual fund or you have a 401k in your company like you're participating in something that look at the 2008 crisis Mm -hmm. that actually cost people their homes, their livelihoods Mm -hmm. is actively centralizing power into these corporations. I mean, the numbers we're dealing with is in the trillions of dollars for one company. Yeah. Like S&P 500 is like. 17 trillion dollars yeah. among 500 companies right that's like we're talking about astronomic wealth and that's away from the workers like the context in which these debates are going in i i feel like that can be missed by some people yeah because i think sometimes catholics you know we're, we're kind of moralists you know like you get get a couple boys together get a couple beers and you're going to start asking about whether something's really a sin and you're gonna you know what i mean <laughs> yeah that's just good fun Mm-hmm. And but part of the problem with with like arguments about moral licitness is you can kind of miss the forest for the trees. It seems right, mm-hmm. like you're there and you're and you're nitpicking about whether like an individual can technically do this act. Yeah. But when you back up, it's like you're you're sitting in like the the pagan temple asking you know whether you can you know light a candle, and it's like maybe you can, maybe you can't, man. But <laughs> but you're in the pagan you, temple. Like, just maybe, be clear. <laughs> Yeah, no, this does seem to be one of those effects. Now, that being said, it's not like it is because these things are are integrated. It is the case that we have to get the moral questions right because all of the insanity you're talking about um, seems to us is implied in the act, uh, Mm -hmm. the personal act. So structures of sin, we think, aren't extrinsic to personal sin. Rather, precisely because there's some element uh, of violence, something contrary to nature in the very smallest personal decision, um, you have the kind of foothold for the entire structure to be built. And it would be difficult to argue that if it was a virtuous act, if it was um, something good to do 
from the beginning that such atrocities could be built up on top of it. No, it's not impossible, right? So there's there's ways that people can be manipulated. Good acts can be used for evil ends, things like that, of course. Um, but yeah, as a general rule, there is a a tie between personal sin and structures of sin, mm-hmm. and, and we need to follow that up. And so that's why I think these debates are, are worth having. Um, and the structures orient a particular type of behavior. Right, so, so you have a secondary back. market, and then all of a sudden you're buying options on it, and then you're trading this and that, and then you're embodying that bourgeois spirit by doing that. Now, um, you know, if you're in a mutual fund or it's a 401k, I think it's less you know, you're less becoming like that if it's just it's just part of your work. Yeah, they just give it if to you. If you're actively trading, you know, and you see that it's just all numbers, that's, yeah. Anyways, there's we a all have We there. all have, like, but beyond the debate, beyond the intellectual work, there there are reasons for being convinced. There are reasons for being swayed into a particular um, attraction or repulsion to this kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the ways that this this manifests itself is through an analysis of character, right? So this is how most people, I think, actually operate. Very few people really like to to sort of get into moral debates. I mean, it seems to me. Yeah. Sort of a, a rare breed. I mean, I like them, but they're kind of obnoxious at parties. So I understand that other people tend to ask questions that are more like, well, this person does this, and I don't like him. Like, he seems to be repulsive in some way, and I don't want to be like that. Or... Well, this person acts in this way, and he's my hero. I want to be like him. I mean, something about the theology of the saints just this is implicit. It's not mm. like it's not like you have a bunch of rules that Saint Francis follows, and that's why Saint Francis is Saint Francis. It's precisely the inverse. You love Saint Francis. You hear about the stuff he does, and you're like, "What is this guy about?" And you derive from his life, from his character, mm. um, the kind of rules that you could follow to imitate the saint. Right, you say like, okay, it's not the case that you just sit there thinking like, um, it is good to give away your goods to the poor, and then Saint Francis did that, and I want to be like him because he obeyed the law so well. It's like, no, no, no. You you hear the story of Saint Francis giving everything away, and you ask, by what spirit, by what norm, by what law, unto like, what law did he take into himself? Mm-hmm. What can be repeated in that action that I could be a part of? How can I participate? How can I imitate? So character. Uh, it, it it's like the beauty of people that attracts us to the things they do, and then we try to imitate them in doing that. Yeah. Okay, but it also works the other way around, right? Which is like, you know, like my wife and I, when we ask questions about how to parent and what to do, we don't really have like an ideological framework, or even like a not even ideological, just like but there's no method really. But what we do have is examples, and there's people that we're like, well, we don't want to do that. <laughs> All right, so. Um, and it's something like that happens with with the stock market for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying this is the only way to, to sort of come to it. It's just like when I meet people whose life or at least who a, a main part of their life is playing the stock markets, I find that they have reprehensible characters. Um, and I don't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. And I don't want like children to be educated by them, for instance. Yeah. Like I would like to to uh, banish them from whatever society I have authority over, <laughs> mm-hmm. because I find that the things that um, excite them and the things that uh, get them motivated and the way they spend their time is 
um, is um, that closed bourgeois just, spirit. Just go that, to a Bitcoin convention in Miami and that you will have... Like hell. <laughs> Yes. Did like, you go to a Bitcoin convention in Miami? No. Okay, all right. So no, but, but, I mean, you will instantly have, well, it, why would you go to a convention all about Bitcoin or, or about, like, the hedge fund or whatever? It's, yeah, there, it's like a, people talk also, like, if you go to major hedge funds in New York, a lot of them have moved to Miami. There, there are a lot of, like, MIT PhDs, yeah. like, top of their field people yeah. who now do nothing but numbers totally and it's like that is what we value most in society is the ability to allocate funds in order to produce more capital and so the people that could be doing actual work yeah, yeah, yeah. are doing number moving and stuff like that well and that, that they, are their designing you know, weapons Designing weapons, yeah. yeah. yeah that's why I, I like people are like, I'm in computer science. I'm like, cool, weapons or stocks? <laughs> They're like, no, no, no. I, I'm actually designing like a, a system of artificial intelligence. I'm like, yeah, who's funding it? They're like, the Navy. I'm like, right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Yeah. But, sorry, um, computer science guys. We, we, we feel your pain. But I, I, I do like the, uh, you know, it's not just the moral argument that in a sense we're, you have to make a kind of, this is just a nobler, more beautiful life to be spent um, investing in others mm -hmm. rather than extracting yeah. and abstracting all of your wealth to corporations that you will never even touch or know about. Yeah, yeah. And, and you does... can talk about abstract voting rights and right, whatever, right, right, but... Right. Well, it does seem, though, that in, in the debates um, about the stock market, people all know this. And so that's why their goal is to, is to sort of clear that um, character of the stock investor of the charge. I mean, their their goal is to say like, no, no, no. There really is ownership. There really is responsibility. There really is work. For instance, like an argument we often hear is that, oh, you say this is like gaining wealth without work, but look how much work these stock traders are doing. I mean, they're like up all night. Like some of them, they're doing cocaine just to get through the <laughs> through the evening. I mean, this is hard work. Wall Street, baby. Um, and so, so it's not it's not like they're they're. It's not like they're dumb. It's not like they're advocating for the for the character. They're trying to sort of reveal it as really working, really owning, really being responsible, really investing, really having good results and good fruits. Look at these look at these companies. You know, they're doing so much good. That sort of thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Anyway, so that's enough of that. Um, a couple more things to cover, and we'll get out of here. So, Andrew Jones's essay. What'd you think? Oh, man. Full course meal. I mean, it's. I know everything it's, we it's do amazing. at the end of the day is just to set the table for Andrew. For, for Andrew to, yeah, to yeah. really run with it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, on sovereignty, and it's it's like the problem of modern politics. I think yes. it's it's one of the deepest issues, um, and it because it, it touches on law. It touches on what is the source of our political order. It touches on what is man. Social, what is man? Social or individual? Is he social individual? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. We're not going to summarize Andrew's essay here. It's impossible. It's impossible to do. Um, but we are going to say that this is very important to read, Andrew, because what Andrew is doing is saying that the, um, the underlying anthropology of modernity is not repudiated by um, moves to... See, I can't even do this without describing sovereignty and all this. So let's just say it like this. He is arguing that there's a fundamental break between Christian teaching and modern teaching and that it's not overcome by various sort of like Christianization of modern politics moves mm. that you often see.
but that there needs to be true conversion. Um, and, and in a sense, like an, an image would be like, there's a black hole called sovereignty that's just sucking all of the good yes. of politics into itself. Yes. And that that's our modern way of just, we, we want, sovereignty is kind of, um, it's reshaping how we understand politics actively. Yes. Yeah, and, and it's and, changing our view of state and peoples. And, yeah, and if I could most basically say it, it's that um, in a model of sovereign politics, order ultimately descends from man and not from God. Um, and that ultimately we do not receive the peace, we give it, which was a Cardinal Richelieu quote that Andrew gives oh, at the end. Now, Fantastic. Cardinal Richelieu, okay, so when I first read this quote, no idea who this guy was, and thought to myself, well, this must be a guy who thinks a lot like Andrew Jones, right? Because he's quoting him and he says the following. The kings, your predecessors had in the past received the peace from rather than given it to their subjects. And I thought, what an incisive man to way back then see the difference between sovereign model of politics and a non-sovereign model of politics. And then I recognized, after a little bit of Wikipedia, that Cardinal Richelieu was like the architect of absolutism and was actually the guy who... Well, he wasn't saying this, I mean, I don't think he could have been saying this with regret or nostalgia. He was just like, this is the difference. We are now going to give the peace to subjects rather than receive it from them. Oh, so, yeah, I never so I, No, I didn't know that either. <laughs> so, you know, and Andrew will make this point all the time that like, don't think about this change from Christendom to modernity as somehow the introduction of something that isn't Christian or isn't from the church. It is the corruption of the church. It's not like an extrinsic force that does this or an external force that does this. It's cardinals. It's the clergy. You know, uh, he made the point to me, and I think it's quite right. Like when Henry VIII declared himself head of the church, there was one bishop that resisted. One. Yeah. John Fisher, right? He's a saint. Yeah, he's a saint. (laughs) But like, so, so, so what we're looking at is the corruption of the baptized into a new form of life where they live in a certain rebellion to uh, to God mm-hmm. and, and and the order he has for us. It is not like there's this pure, uncorrupted um, Catholic civilization that that meets some Invaders kind of Mongol kinda... horde that, you know, makes them all into liberals. Yeah. And there's like, it's, it's almost variations on what was there that it, yeah. instead of, okay, well, instead of, we receive the peace, now we give the peace. Yeah. But that small variation makes a, yep. it is a, like a total inversion of the understanding of politics. Yes, yes, I think so. So we won't, we won't, we won't do anything besides tell you to, to read it. I'm going to read the last quote just to whet your appetite, okay? We live, an increasing, we live in an increasingly tyrannical society, an aspect of which is its Hobbesian construction of social reality. Now, by Hobbesian, he means this this sovereign construction where order descends from man. Effective reactions to this tyranny cannot be to merely resurrect old manifestations of Hobbesianism in order to turn them against current versions. The solution to liberalism is not sovereignty. Sovereignty is already liberal, and liberalism is already sovereign. They have been bound together since their beginnings. Divine right or other forms of theocratic absolutism gain us nothing in our conflict with liberalism. To embrace them is merely to play another round of the same old game, a game that is rather played out. So that's the idea. If you yep. want it, read it. Okay. Uh, Michael Higgins wrote a great essay on uh, 
Orwell. And he's it's simple stuff in some ways. It's just saying that the the uh, metaphysics of of um, dystopia um, that underlie what we think of Orwellianism really, really, they really are our metaphysics. So a kind of nominalism, a kind mm-hmm. of um, belief in power over act. So the idea that power is properly understood as like a sheer capacity for action um, rather than uh, potentiality that belongs to something by its nature, a limited potentiality. Yes. So. In a similar way of, uh, you know, you receive the peace, you don't give the peace. Mm. It's like what he's arguing here, what Orwell's saying is that, well, we're supposed to receive reality and then respond, but in, you know, Orwell's dystopia, we make the reality, we impose it upon, and two plus two can be five. Right, right. And as long as the big brother says this is this, you you are freed by that slavery to their reality. Right. You right. know? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, a, it's an excellent companion piece with Andrews because yes. he sort of describes the far end of like, well, this is what it's like for order to really come from man. I'll read a quick point. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this, so he's sort of summing up some of his essay, makes us rethink our use of the word Orwellian. How do you say or- Orwellian? I mean, you put a V on it? Orwellian. Orwell. Orwellian. When, for example, someone is silenced or punished for refusing to use preferred pronouns, there is certainly something Orwellian afoot. Yet this move is not Orwellian simply, or first, because beliefs are being policed or speech oppressed. It is Orwellian because belief and speech about gender as an objective reality are being policed and suppressed. Big Brother hates free speech and unregulated thought. Yet he also hates objective reality, especially the public recognition of objective reality. So if we frame this issue exhaustively in terms of individual freedom, then we play into Big Brother's hands. That's a really good point. Because sometimes we get this idea that the reason that all of the gender ideology stuff um, that we hate, I've tried to make an effort not to use the word woke ever, but it's really helpful to signify what people signify when they use it as the signifier. So all that woke stuff. Um, It's not... Like sometimes we want to say like, well, what's wrong here is that it's all false, right? They're, they're, these are all lies, right? Mm. And we're going to not live by lies. And instead we have the truth and here's here's objective reality. But what, what Higgins is pointing out is that the kind of deeper metaphysical underpinning is not that it's false as opposed to true, but that neither matters because order descends from man. Yes. So this is why we live in weird, weird, a weird age where like it's not that you'll hear the response like I think that human beings are fundamentally androgynous and that gender is a certain way of acting um, but nothing more. People don't actually say that. What they say is, you know, sometimes I refer to people by whatever pronouns they want and other times I don't. Mm. Like I... Uh, basically submit to gender ideology sometimes. And then the implication is I also submit to sort of a, uh, you know, traditional gender, but you make it an ideology precisely by virtue of uh, it not mattering mm-hmm. whether it's true or not. True or false is not a question here. It's it's yes. just what works. And I don't know if you've read Baudrillard on this with not. sign simulacra, but the simplest way, so this comes from Baudrillard both in... Um, 
simulation and simulacra and fatal strategies. But it's the idea that if you have a, a simple sign signified relation, yeah. so where this thing is a sign of this is the thing that's signified, yeah. that um, you can end up in a scenario where the sign takes precedent over the thing signified to such a degree that it becomes a simulacra of the, the, the sign. And that that's really so an example he gives is like disneyland okay and you have like main street usa yeah it's supposed to be a sign of the signified of usa yes but like you go to los angeles and it doesn't look like main street usa (laughs) but in a sense it doesn't matter it's our idea of what main street usa is that that's you know or Adventureland and disneyland or whatever and that um you know like coke saying it's the real thing yeah signifying what well, well it's it's coke is just a simulacra of of like a whole you know it, it moves beyond just sign and signified or right. the benjamin taking the you know the hundred dollar bill being the simulacra of all sorts of signs it just means itself gotcha. it doesn't have to mean anything else that it signifies yeah. yeah when big brother says it's two plus two equals five that doesn't have to mean anything right it just has to affect a certain power yeah, and 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 adherence to it um, is what constitutes your subjection to a to a human regime. Exactly. So to insist otherwise is ultimately to appeal to something outside of the human, ultimately God. Because if two plus two does equal four, no matter what, no matter how we construct the world, then you're appealing to something that does exist apart from our will. Mm. Um, and it seems like the, the, the end point of like a demonic impulse is to really construct the world in such a way that it does appear as if things do proceed from our will. Just from the will, just from yeah. some, some human. So, you know, you're walking New York and it's all skyscrapers and Wall Street and that doesn't, it, you know, you have St. Patrick's, which signifies something grand or some transcendence. But the way we do our architecture, it's your your only encounter is the simulacra of someone's power to mm-hmm. produce wealth. And that is the civilization that you see. And so all those signs lead you to that signification. Yeah. If you're in Big Brother's reality and Orwell's reality, it's like all the signs around you are, they just mean the power of Big Brother. Right, right, right. There's nothing beyond it. And yeah. as it becomes totalized, Everything is just the simulacra, the real, and you can't distinguish it from each other. Yeah. No, there's a Jewish story of um, Abraham growing up in in Babylon, and um, he is in a world in which all order descends from the king, Nimrod, and um, there's idol worship, right? So everything is a man-made god, so it's sort of, uh, you know, power that seems to transcend man, but ultimately can be reduced back to him, which is why idolatry is so offensive in the Old Testament, right? Like, these are made out of wood. A man made this. Um, But Abraham gets locked in prison at some point for some antics, and he looks out the window. Maybe he's in his, maybe he's in his, um, he's hiding from Nimrod in some way. And he looks out his window and he sees the sun and the moon. And he notices something. He notices that, um, neither the sun nor the moon have any kind of absolute jurisdiction over the night, 
um, rather the sun rules the day and the moon rules the night, which is of course the the Genesis text where the, where this is um, where the story is coming from. Mm-hmm. And he concludes that neither can be God or gods because that which gives way to another is not God, right? Mm-hmm. But the beauty of that story is it's precisely by looking out of Babel into the sky that there's evidence of an order that suggests something that rejects or or, or is beyond hmm. change, beyond uh, giving way, beyond malleability before yeah. another. Wow. And, and that's where Abraham meets God. Hmm. And because of this, he's called out of, or really this is part of his call, out of Babel, out of the, the sort of... Um, total constructed order where where literally the city is made to appear um, as if the social order itself descends from man. We don't need God. Mm. Um, he's called out of this in, into wilderness, essentially. Yeah. You know? So, um, all of which is to say, stop worshiping idols, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Higgins did a great job. We're really excited about that essay. Uh, we should probably wrap it up here, but we should name name so many people. We should just give our give our thanks to Thomas Stork for being very meticulous about St. John Paul II on on speculation, mm-hmm. um, just trying to to nail down what the Pope means um, when he condemns speculation. And to um, this writer, his name is Thomas Thomas Aquinas, and he oh yeah uh, I've heard of that one yeah he's yeah. great did a little bit on um, buying low and selling high. And we have a review section. So if you just want to read this to figure out what else to read, well, we've got it for you, okay? Um, so this is, we have reviews of uh, Sigrid Unset's Catherine of Siena, so a really great biography of the saint by our very own Maria Brandel. She wrote that review. We've got a review of Roger Scruton's The Soul of the World by our Adam Sandinato, who is an excellent guitarist. And another review by, I'm going to murder this name, Alejandro Turan Somahano. Nailed it. Thanks, man. Um, who actually did a really, really great essay on um, three different murals um, in Mexico City and in D.C. and in which city in Italy? A city in Italy. Um, and used them rather brilliantly to, com- to compare and contrast the, the visions of political order that each encapsulate. So, these are just some of the great goods you can get from subscribing to New Polity Magazine. Absolutely. And it's it really is a great way to support the mission uh, of New Polity and you will have a lot to chew on if you if you get it. There there it's very dense and very uh, wide as well in terms of the discussion. The reviews are really good, so get your magazine. And uh, we should introduce yeah. this guy cuz I realize this is your first time showing up on the on on a, the screen. Yeah, I'm always behind the screens. This but. is Alex Denley. Alex Denley is going to be with us, and he is doing a little bit of everything here. Um, he'll be our our man behind the podcasts primarily, um, and we really appreciate that. But he's also contributing to the magazine. Uh, he's going to be writing some reviews, some essays, and hopefully doing some podcasting of his own. And, uh, yeah, who knows what else? He'll probably be answering emails too. So Sounds good. All right. Enjoying it. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Bye.